He was the most frightening person I have ever met. And bear in mind, I was once stuck in a lift with Mad Frankie Fraser for three hours. And there was a man who didn't like confined spaces, I can tell you. I've never seen rage in anyone like I saw in him. Now he had evil inside of him. Absolute, pure evil. If he liked you, that was a blessed relief. See, I'd seen him try and rip someone's ear off just for daring to comment about his corner. I once saw him kick a lawyer in the throat and then attempt to skin him alive with a letter opener. It still haunts me to this day. He had the most impeccable table manners of any inmate in Pentonville. It was a joy to watch him eat lunch. He's the most unique as a barrister and a judge on the Queen's bench. Such a strange boy. He was haunted, uh, almost. Oh, he put the willies right up me. And I placed my thumbs over each other's eyes. I slowly began to squeeze, and I carried on squeezing harder and deeper, harder, feeling his eyeballs consciously burst in tandem. Oozing down my wrists, resembling raspberry panacotta. My name is Magnus Finch. I'm a writer, a journalist, and broadcaster. For as long as I can remember, I've been consumed with a desire to unearth original and compelling stories. Over the past few decades, I've highlighted corruption at the highest level of politics, injustices in the legal system, corporate irresponsibilities at boardroom level, and international animal rights abuses. But nothing can beat the thrill you get unearthing a story about a character that is so engrossing and utterly unique, unlike anyone else that you've come across before. That sort of story and character comes along once on a blue moon, if you're lucky. A couple of years ago, thanks to a work colleague who was emigrating, I received some old boxes, uh, one of which contains a series of forthright interviews with an extraordinary character. He was called Queenie. How had such a notorious and unique character remained so completely under the radar? He was last sighted at a bare-knuckle boxing fight in Gravesend, Kent in 2010, following his last known prison term in Belmarsh, a Category A jail, where he was incarcerated for five years. There have been no recorded sightings since this incident, and with no official death certificate or any other recent sightings, the question of where is Queenie now still hangs in the air. The last episode featured possibly the most strange of all the occurrences in Queenie's life, which happened to Wormwood Scrubs in 2001, when he married a pen pal called Lynn. Queenie claims it was to give the impression of wanting to live a normal life, of embracing a more settled domestic situation in an attempt to have his second sentence reduced. This episode focuses on the time when Queenie became fixated on the afterlife, which he did in an effort to contact his departed mother. Was there a legitimate fascination with all things clairvoyant? Or was he trying to assuage himself of guilty feelings he might have felt for leaving her in a home 
when he was first carted off to Parkhurst. Episode 6 Is There Anyone There? If you've been listening previously, you will know that Queenie was exceedingly close to his mother, especially from his teenage years once his father had walked out on the family. This is from an interview from 2002, where Queenie is talking to my colleague Grant McGregor about the love that he felt for his mother. School took me away from the house and from dear mama. I could see... It was a struggle for her. But still, you were shipped off Wiltshire and then Hampshire. Indeed. From Salisbury Cathedral School and then Winchester College. The long way from Lincolnshire was not exactly easy to pop home on the occasional Sunday and get spoiled with a big family roast luncheon and be told how much you are being missed by your parents. They never said that they missed you. Father certainly did not. Not once. Mama was almost incapable, but she did try in her own almost futile way. But this is what you did with children from families who lived in drafty houses. They get shipped off with a trunk full of itchy uniforms and pants with labels sewn onto them, sent to cold schools miles away where all manner of things are done to them by older boys and lustful, angry teachers, things that will both prepare them for life ahead but also scar them irreparably. Previously you mentioned that you enjoyed your time at school. Oh, I did. Very much. But I think I would have enjoyed my time at home more. At least there was a modicum of warmth and familiarity. It is true to say that Mama and I became far closer once I hit puberty. But for those formative years, my parents were barely acquaintances at best. This is Queenie's cousin Ethelred, now living near Goa in India, in an interview I conducted with him on Zoom. I remember his mother, Petronella, so very well, even though she passed on in 1987. It was a difficult time for my mother, who not only lost her daughter, Thomasina, back in 1981 to leukemia, but now her sister, only six years later. Awful, awful business. Do you remember how Queenie was at that time, when his mother Petronella passed? At the funeral. Bear in mind, he was chained to a prison officer. So he was quiet... I remember, very, very quiet. You couldn't get more than a word or two out of him. And, and then at, at the reception, uh, I suppose he, he, he let go a little more. I remember him sounding like a bear, crying. 
just an awful, awful plaintive sound. Had he ever expressed an interest in the afterlife? Anything about um, contacting the dead? He did have a fascination with a couple of our past relatives. He was especially interested with, with a dressmaker. But I don't think he ever tried to contact him or have any sort of a occultist connection with any of them. Here's Queenie once again chatting to Grant McGregor about his mother's passing and that funeral. Am I right in saying that your mother Petronella passed on in 1987? Yes. Whilst I was away in a show of overwhelming generosity. They let me out for the day to attend a funeral, handcuffed to an officer, even in the crematorium chapel. Can you imagine? Me handcuffed to a virtuous stranger to attend your own mother's funeral. It was humiliating to be led from the meat wagon down the pathway to the gathered family members like a prized sow. Can you imagine such a thing? No, I, I, I can't. It must have been truly an appalling thing to have gone through. It was in the reception. Oh, that was a nightmare. How so? Have you ever tried to help yourself to a well-stocked buffet whilst being handcuffed to someone that really does not want to be there? It is an exercise in futility and irritation. You told me before that you were convinced that she died of a broken heart. I think that is an accurate summation. She was weak. From the years of mental torture my father had put her through. And then, of course, the affair with the Russian strumpet only compounded her misery. I conducted my own interview with the Russian strumpet, as Queenie repeatedly calls her, and she naturally had her own take on the situation. Yes, Petronella. Another ridiculous name, Petronella. <laughs> and in no way a wife. You think she have hobbies like horses or, or gardening? You know what she do all day, every day? She make mayonnaise. Da, mayonnaise, that's it. All day whisking, 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 making more and more and more, but never eating it. But you know, why, why would you do this? If I was psychoanalyzer, I would say the egg yolk was the relationship and the oil was her loveless poison being added to it. Queenie claims that Hubert, your lover, his father, put Petronella through years of mental abuse. What do you say to that? Hubert incapable of this, okay? He was a funny little man who was scared of his wife. I think, I think menopause make her unstable. 
It almost happened to me. It really played havoc in my head, turned me into a very angry person. Perhaps she was victim of this, and with the ridiculous uh, sticky upper lip, she not seek any kind of help. But of course him, being small English Polish man, he got frightened by this new version of his wife and whole marriage breakdown. But he not responsible, and me not responsible neither. Okay, thank you very much. So there you have it, pretty emphatic. However, Queenie was clearly distressed at his mother's decline, which eventually ended up with her needing permanent care. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that they behaved in the most cold and uncaring fashion. I watched her physically and mentally deteriorate, and, and the house, too, was slowly falling apart. Mama became less and less able to resist these changes to, to the house and to herself. And when the lawyers came, first with the divorce papers and then to take away her home, she shrunk away to the point of becoming a recluse. She suffered mental episode one after the other until she was almost unable to function. And after a time, she could barely converse with me, let alone play a rubber of bridge or engage in one of her most favorite pastimes of phoning up working men's clubs in areas of mass unemployment simply to laugh at them. So there was little else I could do but find a home for her, where she could be adequately cared for by professionals. The one we settled on was in Bigshot, in Surrey. That must have been heart-wrenching. It was. For any of these establishments, homes, they are vessels that contain the hapless, the incapable, the confused, this particular one, stank of misery and piss, and old biscuits soaked in piss. It was apparent to me that some of the casual staff were clearly taking advantage of those residents who are incapable of knowing what was going on, no doubt pilfering items from their rooms whilst they sucked barely edible slop through a straw in the dining room, or, or perhaps they even abused the poor sods after lights out, knowing that they didn't have the capacity to utter any protestation. So, when you were... Arrested and, and, and found guilty. No, 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 dear boy. I admitted my guilt. I embraced it. Okay, so when you admitted that you had embezzled the three million pounds and you were sentenced to your first term behind bars, well, that must have hit doubly hard knowing that your mother was in this home. My only solace was that she couldn't visit me in Parkhurst, a stinking cesspool of wrongs. The shock of seeing me in such an ill-fitting uniform would have been enough to push her over the edge. Do you think that she was aware of your enforced absence? Thankfully, no. 
the last few times that I was able to sit with her in her room at Cedars. She was entirely vacant. <laughs> I might as well have been a platter of soft summer fruits or a junior school wind band. She remained completely unawares. His psychologist, Nigel Puse. Queenie's mother, Petronella, died two years into his prison sentence. Now, we know that he attended the funeral handcuffed to a prison officer, and we can only imagine just how humiliated he must have felt. As a fiercely proud man with a strong desire to lash out at those he thought of as inferior, i.e. nearly everyone, it is remarkable that the funeral went ahead incident-free. But the suppressing of such deeply felt emotion would have weighed heavily on Queenie. But instead of returning to Parkhurst and lashing out like an epileptic banshee in a garden shed, he sinks low. He becomes consumed by guilt. And this guilt propels him on a journey to seek out something more spiritual, to to make contact with the spirit of his deceased mother. There were two people that he became fixated on as potential communicators with his deceased mother. The first was a moderately well-known newspaper astrologer by the name of Melody Newman, and the other was a fellow inmate who had a reputation as a clairvoyant something he first acquired years before in his hometown. Shed Sven. He was a huge man with hands like moon craters and a facial complexion that was redolent of bubble wrap left too long in the sun. He had a a high-pitched voice which belied his bulk. He spoke in a soft Yorkshire accent, very, very gentle, like his embrace. He claimed that after his parents were killed in a climbing accident in the Cairngorms, they would both visit him on a nightly basis in his small terraced house in a village near Ripon. These claims caused quite the local commotion. His neighbours got wind that they had a clairvoyant in their midst, Demand was such that he began to open up a small psychic salon in the shed in his garden. Ah, hence the name. (laughs) Nothing gets past you, does it, McGregor? And so you would visit with him for the purposes of contacting your mother? Indeed. I had bribed one of the screws to allow me to make use of a cupboard that housed cleaning supplies as our rendezvous location. And we would meet twice a week for about 15 minutes at a time. We know that Shed Sven, real name Stephen Pilcock, died of respiratory problems in 2009 in the home where he would hold these private seances in the aforementioned garden shed. His daughter Nancy proved very helpful and very much wanted him to feature in this podcast. She sent me a recording of her father holding what he used to call open community seances, something he did with increased regularity in the years before his passing. 
It certainly tallies with Queenie's detail of him having an unusually high voice for a man of his size. And looking at a few photos I've seen of him, he was quite the bulky unit, standing 6'4 and as wide as a double-doored American fridge. Um, if you like to squeeze in by the, um, the old radiogram, if we could get a couple more people in, but don't, don't try and stand so close to one another. <laughs> it's a seance, not a ladies' night at a discotheque. Right, right, thank you for attending today's community seance, or I'm going to lead the communion with those that I've passed on. I've already asked you to supply me with the names of those you'd like me to contact and once I've sifted through them, hopefully, well, we'll get the chance to contact each and every one. Now, please understand, I say it every week, that the spirits, they lack a local bus service, a bit unreliable, quite infrequent, and not always going as far as you'd like them to. But once they've arrived, hopefully you'll find they'll become a welcome part of your lives. So, first one is Callum Edges. Hiya, Callum. Who wanted me to contact the family's former old pair, Paula, who's from the Czech Republic, who, um, oh, she sadly died trying to shimmy down her drain pipe from the outside of his dad's bedroom. Lord only knows what was going on there, but we're not here to pass judgment. Listening to the whole recording of that afternoon's seance, well, it seems that the spirits were keeping well away. Shed had almost no luck contacting any of the neighbours, relatives or friends. And when he was in Parkhurst, he was located a few cells along the landing to Queenie, who was convinced that his mother was speaking to him through Sven. For the first couple of sittings, Sven was clearly channeling something. He was very persuasive, talking to me with such comfort. He held me to his breast whilst stroking my hair, something I never allowed anyone to do. And he would utter sayings that were so so particular to me from the depths of my memory. There, there, little one, don't forget to lock up the orangery. Don't leave your tailcoat hanging up in the boot room. Be careful around the Gainsborough. It's the last one we have. How could I doubt the authenticity of such intimate knowledge of how Mama spoke to me? Purely playing devil's advocate here, but, well, he did know that you were from a a well-heeled family who lived in a large country house with an orangery and and a boot room. It sounds like they could have been educated guesses. But I did leave my tailcoat in the boot room, and I never locked the orangery. And as for the Gainsborough, it was a sketch not really worth much at all, which is why I hold so little regard for it. But but, but how did you know such things? Professional charlatans are trained to pick up on information and they will get that information by whatever means necessary. 
are sadly right, of course. When he began to get names wrong, names of Mama's sister, the family pet, Mr. Nixon, called him Lamal. Bizarrely, not even close. That was when I, I thought he was trying to curry favor with me by pretending to commune with Mama. Of course, there would be consequences for his cloak of deceit, and he knew it. The wider the mark he became with every detail, the more he began to grasp at straws. I knew, and he knew I knew. And he began to retreat, frightened about what I would do to him. And what did you do to him? Nothing. My initial thought was to grot the cocksucker, to disembowel him in some sort of diabolical biblical punishment. However, I was so consumed by grief for Mama that I couldn't muster up the strength. My grief drained me of all vengeful tendencies. It would be many, many months before I had the desire to properly have a go on him. By which time, he was out on parole. Chance lost. Queenie also sought the advice of a well-known newspaper and magazine astrologer, Melody Newman. He spoke to Grant McGregor about his respect for her writing and also her profession. Um, something about her writing that I found comforting. So much more enlightened than Mystic Meg. <sighs> An end of the pure charlatan with headscarf and hooped earrings. Uh, Melody's predictions were so astute and pinpoint accurate that I knew I had to talk to her about Mama. I believed wholeheartedly that she would be able to shed light on where she was, where her spirit currently resided. You got this just reading her columns in the newspaper. She also wrote for periodicals like TV Quick and The Lady. Right, and, but that's lent it more authenticity, did it? Careful with your sarcasm. McGregor, back it comes, like an unwanted feral beast trying to infiltrate one's home to take advantage of one's good nature. My advice, close your patio doors, lest the beast finds its way back in. Well, though, so Melody was someone you thought could help contact your mother on the other side, as it were. You must understand that I was in a great deal of pain emotionally at the time. I was banged up in Parkhurst when she passed. It was my first incarceration, and I really... I hadn't processed the loss in any way whatsoever. Things did eventually boil over, but this was several months later. And I did go a little berserk, resulting in a couple of months in the strong box. Can ask for what? An unpleasant incident in the kitchen uh, with an industrial-sized cake mixer, a cheese grater, and a slippery offender from Seawing, who thought it would be acceptable to taunt me. A line was crossed 
when he mentioned Mama, and he bore the full brunt of my rage. It was the first attack since Doogie. I realize now my rage was fueled by my not being able to fully process Mama's passing. Although I was in solitary, one screw did take pity on me. And he brought me the occasional periodical. Out of date, of course. I accrued a few copies of The Lady, and I began to read Melody Newman's monthly column on astrology. She read so beautifully, with such empathy and a connection to a human condition. Once I was rewarded writing privileges, we struck up a friendship, and I vowed to visit her on my release. And did you? I did. But it did not go the way I had wished. How so? It transpired that she could not help with contacting Mama or any other spirits for that matter because she was an astrologer and her protestations became louder and louder, claiming that despite her credentials as a paid soothsayer for various periodicals, I should look toward someone with a more mystic connection. I found her increasingly unwilling, unsympathetic, and unpleasant. After 20 minutes of difficult discourse and a slice of very Belovoir Battenberg cake, I left. I wanted to hear from Melody herself, who many years later is still churning out weekly columns for newspapers around the world. That was one of the oddest meetings. I was forewarned that he was a strange character, and believe you me, there are a lot of them in my world. But he was especially strange. Added to that, he was bereft, and he was angry, very angry. And what did he want you to do? To contact his mother. And that's just not something I do. I'm an astrologer, paid by newspapers or publishers. I told him, Queenie, darling, I look at the planets. I study the moon cycle. I base my predictions on astrological data. What you're seeking is something altogether different. You need a clairvoyant, someone with a direct link to souls that have passed on. Me, I can give you science, predictions based on empirical data. You, you need someone who's a conduit between here and the psychic unconscious. And I presume he was uh, pretty upset by this. Oh, he got very angry. He began throwing things around my room. Paperwork, astrological charts, my globe. I've got a very ornate rosewood cabinet containing crystals. He made a beeline for that, but thankfully he tripped on my Persian cat and took a tumble. There was a fall, he hit his head, and that snapped him out of his rage. He stood there, panting and drooling, properly salivating. And then he, he did something I will never forget. What was that? He was panting like a rabid dog. I remember he collected the quite significant amount of spittle that was dripping from his mouth. 
in the palm of his hand, and he used that spittle to sweep hair over his bald head, using it like some sort of hair lotion to fix the wispy strands to his head. It was revolting, absolutely revolting. Let's hear from psychologist Nigel Puce once again. Queenie's first time in Parkhurst. This is his first incarceration behind bars. It would have been a hugely traumatic time. So he's dealing with his freedom being rescinded, a vast alteration in where he's living with a completely unique set of rules and regulations. It would have been utterly alien to him. Then you have to take into account that he knows that his mother has suffered a huge breakdown and is locked up in a home. When she passes on, it must have compounded just how alone he would have felt. And, of course, he has to attend her funeral handcuffed to a prison officer. Uh, well, he, he'd have felt humiliated, for sure. Add to that, he wouldn't have been able to enjoy or partake of the wake, which would have angered him further. And then, well, things take a strange turn. They do. Because after a time, he feels an all-consuming need to try and contact her. My feeling is that he was seeking to somehow assuage himself of the, the cloak of guilt that he'd no doubt worn since she went into a home. Tied into that, I'm sure he was also trying to convince himself that she was at peace wherever that was. I wanted to find out a little more about the later years of his mother, Petronella. She died in 1987, only 65 years of age. She'd been resident for over two years at the home in Bagshot in Surrey. Now, Queenie is pretty disparaging about the home, but others I spoke to were quick to compliment it, citing it as a caring establishment with very sympathetic staff. I was keen to track down someone that might have worked at the home, called Cedars, nicknamed Dun Chewing by Queenie. Because it was a local authority home, it wasn't too difficult to track down employment records from the time. There were two people that were very happy to talk to me about their memories of Petronella. However, I'm only using one of these interviews. Trust me, if you heard the other's voice, you'd thank me. It was shrill and unpleasantly grating. I've wiped it anyways. Here is the other, Harry Thwap. I was a nurse at Cedars from 1984 to 2005. That was 21 years. Now, I started when I was 30, so I left when I was, um, well, you do the maths. <laughs> Go on, then. Sorry, you want me to tell you how old you were when you left? Well, that's what you do the maths means. You work it out. You were 51. 51 years old. Exactly. 51. Right. Okay, 51. Glad we got on top of that. I want to know if you remember Petronella Smallbridge and if so, what do you remember about her? Lovely hands, enjoyed Howard's way, wore her many scarves, was lactose intolerant, intermittently incontinent, and when she smiled, she looked a little like Joan Armour trading. That's a hell of a recollection. I remember all my patients. All of them. Okay, you 
She was one of the youngest residents we had at Cedars, so only in her 60s. She was incapable of anything, really. You heard the saying, lights on, but no one's home. That was made for her. I will say this, though. The only time she became animated was when she saw anyone camp on the television. John Inman, Larry Grayson, Russell Harty, Lionel Blair. She got, she got very animated, like she was ever so familiar in such company. You think perhaps it was of comfort uh, to see a, an effeminate camp person on screen? Undoubtedly. Well, as soon as an episode of The Generation Game finished, she'd, she'd slip into a state of quiet euphoria. And that made feeding and medication time a whole lot easier and incident-free. Can I ask uh, about her passing? I'm loath to use the term she died alone. But effectively, she did. Despite Sidney Alcock on one side of her and Patty Spute on the other, who were, as I remember, engaged in quite a heated disagreement. About what? About whether or not Spam was in fact Spanish ham. Really? I know. It was a kind of pointless question that would descend into full-on argument and... You know, in the midst of this pointless bickering, she just stopped. Just closed her eyes, decided she'd had enough. It was only when Sydney and Patty had retired to their room that we realised that Petronella had gone. Very sad. And that was the finale to Petronella Smallbridge's life. Born Petronella Dunsby, mother to Horatio Smallbridge, Queenie, and former wife of Hubert Smallbridge, 10th Baron of Billingborough a woman who lived and loved Billingborough House, who tried desperately to reverse its fortunes, but who tragically died alone in a nursing home in Surrey, aged only 65. What did Mama die of? A broken heart. First broken so brutally by my father, and then by the lawyers in banking scum who were responsible for taking away the house she so adored and leaving her with nothing. And if you are looking for a reason to account for my violent behaviour of the past couple of decades, then that, my friend, is surely as good a reason as any. So there you have it. A clear and forthright admission from Queenie himself about the reason why he became the man he did. But this story isn't concluded. As I mentioned at the start of this podcast, the last known sighting of Queenie was back in 2010, aged 48, at a bare-knuckle boxing fight in a Gravesend knacker's yard in Kent. He was sighted dressed in his usually distinctive fashion of flamboyant velvet jacket, scarf and fedora hat. But where did he go after there? And who was the young man that accompanied him on that trip? Looking at official prison records, it's clear that he didn't re-enter the prison system. And yet, there is no record of his death. So where is Queenie, Britain's most unlikely violent criminal now?
Queenie, Britain's most unlikely violent criminal. Written and produced by Steve First. With voices and music by Steve First. Additional voices by Debbie Chazen.